Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, The Doctor Won't See You Now by Andrew Hartz. We'll follow that up with an article, A Therapist's Tale, Sex, Drugs, Booze, and Wall Street by Matt Wirtz. Ted Rawls has an article, Affirmative Action Meets Real Life. Then, Summer is for Salamanders by Christopher DeVink. And we have an article by Jason Gay, How I Stopped a Sporting Goods Addiction. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, The Doctor Won't See You Now. A patient came to a clinic where I worked a few years ago. He was looking for help with depression, but also told his therapist that he was feeling frustrated after having lost out on a research fellowship. The patient, who was white, felt the reason was affirmative action. The therapist was Arab. A group of psychiatrists, social workers, and psychologists discussed the case at a clinic-wide meeting and came to an apparent consensus. Confront the patient and tell him that if he didn't overcome his biases, he would be transferred elsewhere. They argued that it would be unfair for a clinician of color to provide therapy to a racist patient. The same ideologies that have infiltrated education, medicine, and the legal profession have also invaded mental health care. The American Psychological Association has decried traditional masculinity. The Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association published a paper describing whiteness as a malignant, parasitic-like condition. Two years ago, a prominent psychiatrist speaking at Yale shared her fantasies of killing white people. Recently, the president of the APA's Division of Psychoanalysis said that therapists should center Palestine as a central working tenant of any clinical praxis. These attitudes are more common than one might imagine. The most recent APA psychoanalytic conference, which has in past focused on the practice of therapy, was absorbed by identity politics, such as the white supremacist within and psychic colonization to quote two panel titles. Emerging empirical research shows the problem is widespread. One forthcoming study charts a more than 500% increase in politically slanted communics at the APA from 2000 to 2002 to 2017-19. A 2018 study showed that psychology departments, like most of academia, have extreme bias with almost 17 registered Democratic professors for every one Republican. The bias is larger at higher-rank schools, and most Republican academics report higher rates of self-censorship. These ideologies are shaping official standards of practice. 
the American Counseling Association's official competency guidelines frame counselors and clients as either privileged or marginalized. The National Association for Social Work, which represents many therapists, has a code of ethics requiring all members of the social work profession to practice through an anti-racist and anti-oppressive lens. But the issue isn't only that clinical practices have become more ideological. Increasing numbers of therapists lack the clinical competency to help patients with truly diverse viewpoints. Years of one-sided education have made many of them unable to tolerate being around people with different views, much less support them as empathic therapists. The large majority of the country has at least one unorthodox opinion. Maybe a conservative political bent, a literal belief in the Bible, or support for free speech even when it's offensive. This includes centrists, moderates, libertarians, and many liberals, as well as people who are simply open-minded. These people need mental health care as much as anyone else, and they deserve a therapist who respects their values. Today, people with unorthodox beliefs face unprecedented antagonism, yet the mental health profession largely ignores them. It's staggering how many populations in need of counseling go overlooked. These include people who have to self-censor, those who faced high costs for their speech, victims of anti-white bias, cops who face hostility simply for doing their jobs, and couples who might be attached to some traditional features of gender. There are also black people who dislike the dominant racial narrative of the left, gay men and lesbians who feel alienated by aspects of LGBT culture, and women who disagree with aspects of contemporary feminism. Most of these people don't know where to go to find a therapist who understands their concerns. To work productively with these groups, therapists need to do more than simply refrain from attacking them or overtly politicizing therapy. Therapists need to have some understanding of patients' experiences and feel comfortable supporting their goals. Therapists who judge, recoil, or quietly rage at their patients can't provide effective therapy. But instead of training therapists to help these people, schools increasingly teach students to view those with unorthodox opinions negatively. The myriad seminars on treating diverse populations that students receive in fact only enable them to work with an ideological narrow segment of the population, although a segment of various races and sexual orientations. Psychological knowledge could even help the country better sustain productive political dialogue. At its best, psychology can help people relate to each other, articulate their concerns, and find solutions to conflict. Unfortunately, as in other professions, the mental health field isn't adequately cultivating robust debate. This has robbed the country of real insight into the many political issues psychology touches from the mental health costs of masking and lockdowns to the transgender debates. To address these concerns, I founded the Open Therapy Institute along with professionals across the political spectrum of many racial, ethnic, and religious backgrounds. 
We have a range of theoretical orientations and area of expertise, but we all share a commitment to open inquiry and empathic patient-centered care. We plan to offer interactive online workshops and clinical services in states across the country. We will train professionals to treat overlooked populations. Millions of Americans are feeling stuck, struggling to respond to a rapidly politicalized culture. Most aren't aware of how transformational psychological concepts can be. If the field becomes an echo chamber, many people won't get the right care. No psychologist should want that. And now a therapist tale. Sex, drugs, booze, and Wall Street. When titans of finance get addicted to drugs and alcohol, they sometimes end up on the couch of Dr. Sam Glazer. Dr. Glazer, a psychiatrist, treats the Wall Street set for substance abuse and other mental illnesses. Demand for services like his has ballooned since the pandemic. Glazer recently added two therapists to his now six-member practice, which treats about 200 patients at a time. Most are traders, fund managers, investment bankers, and corporate lawyers. Almost all are men who are afraid to tell their employers about their ailments, much less ask for medical leaves. I've seen a lot of people who are high-functioning in the upper levels of finance who are terrified of being exposed, Glazer, 56 years old, said. There's a culture of paranoia. Would you want someone to manage your money who's an identified alcoholic? Mental health is becoming an area of increasing concern for health officials, doctors, and lawmakers. That hit home on Wall Street in February when Thomas H. Lee, a private equity pioneer, died by suicide. Still, topics like depression, anxiety, and addiction remain taboo at many financial firms, in part because portraying perfect stability is crucial to attracting and keeping clients. Some industries have moved to destigmatize mental health, offering paid time off and free counseling. The measures are part of a broad shift sweeping higher education, politics, and professional sports, with athletes and lawmakers openly discussing their depression and anxiety. Change has been uneven on Wall Street. Large banks like J.P. Morgan Chase have introduced new mental health initiatives. Private equity funds and hedge funds have been slower to act. Most such alternative investment managers are privately owned and pride themselves on being even more competitive and paying even more than publicly traded big-name banks. Addiction is a huge problem, said Jonathan Alpert, a psychotherapist who also treats professionals in finance as well as technology. Asking for help is probably a little more acceptable in tech because of their focus on wellness, but Wall Street is more traditional, more bust your ass and do what you need to do. Last year, the New York City chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness launched a collaborative of financial companies to raise awareness of mental health. Five banks, including Citigroup and Deutsche Bank, have signed up. Only two alternative investment firms have joined. I pitched dozens and dozens of firms that weren't willing to have this conversation with competitors, said Rachel Steinitz, 
the chapter's Director of Workplace Mental Health. The Alternative Investment Management Association published reports and held webinars concerning mental health in 2020 and 2021, but not since, a spokesman for the trade group said. A spokeswoman for the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, a trade group for Wall Street banks, declined to comment on the industry's response to mental illness among workers. About 3.6% of employees in the finance industry tested positive for drug use in 2022, up from 2.8% in 2019, according to Quest Diagnostics. That is lower than an overall median of about 4.7%, but the data could undercount finance employees. White-collar employers tend to be less likely to test for drug use. Even as a teenager, Glazer assumed he would go into medicine, following the path of his father and later his brother. Then his mother died when he was 21, triggering his own depression, and he decided to study psychiatry. In training, one of his first patients was a Wall Street accountant who lost his job and apartment to a cocaine addiction. To see him get sober and turn his life around, that was very fulfilling, Glazer said. He started treating substance abuse patients referred to him by other doctors. His Wall Street clientele began recommending him to their co-workers, and within a few years, few years he was almost exclusively treating people in finance. Annual compensation for partners at private equity firms and hedge funds can run in the tens of millions of dollars. The money is often a problem. When financial chieftains are riding high, some use substances and compulsive sex to amplify the feeling, Glazer said. When their fortunes sour, they do the same thing to avoid it. Others turn to addiction to mask the reality that, like achieving their goals, launching their own fund or making $100 million, can still leave them feeling empty. At the same time, money can keep them from asking for help. They think no one wants to hear a rich guy complain. Or when they do ask for help, they demand it be on their terms. Early in Glazer's career, a patient with depression and sex addiction says he was too busy to come to the psychiatrist's office. For their first session, he sent the limo to bring Glazer to his downtown workplace. At first you'd think, wow, you're such a special psychiatrist, Glazer said. Then you realize you're not helping the patient, you're becoming his employee. Glazer now practices only from his office on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Patients often come to Glazer after being pressured by a family member, usually a spouse. Four of every five hedge fund and private equity employees are men, according to analytics company Prequent. Men are far less likely to seek mental health treatment, with 18% of men in the United States receiving care, compared with 29% of women, according to the National Center for Health Statistics. Some patients develop addictions to deal with work stress. The Wall Street Mental Health Collaborative held webinars on loneliness and addiction this year, allowing even senior executives to talk about their struggles. They create a safe place to have a dialogue, said Marie Suisse, Global Head of Human Capital at Vardy Partners, an alternative credit fund manager in the group. 
Participating helps set the tone internally that it's okay to step forward and say, I'm struggling with this. Some never relapse. Many stay in treatment and only rarely fall back into harmful behaviors. Others try to recover but slip deeper into addiction, losing their families, their careers, and sometimes their lives. Glazer, who charges $700 per 45-minute session, declined to disclose how many of his patients achieve long-term recovery. Fear of being recognized and outed keeps many financial bigwigs from 12-step groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, Glazer said. Still, he urges patients to attend. Alcohol dependence is the most common condition Glazer treats, while widespread addiction to other substances ebbs and flows, he said. Cocaine infamously tied to the Wall Street in the 1980s fell out of favor but has become more common again and often coincides with sex addiction, he said. Misuse of the stimulant Adderall took off in the pandemic after the government made it easier to get a prescription through a telehealth appointment. Many have leaned on the drug to meet expectations that they constantly be on call and to relieve the isolation of working from home. To help patients, Glazer must first coax them to accept that addictions are a brain disease and it's more powerful than they are, he said. That accomplished, he confronts patients with how they use substances to avoid personal relationships and emotions that cause them discomfort. Successful patients build safety nets among friends or even colleagues whom they can turn to when addiction flares. About half of financial companies have help for employees able to ask for it, Glazer said. If you can find a place where you can talk openly about something so stigmatized and be accepted as a good person, I don't think there's anything better, he said. And now, Affirmative Action Meets Real Life by Ted Rao. Democrats benefited in November from last year's Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. They probably won't get a similar boost from Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. An economist, U Government Survey found 59% of Americans, including 57% of independents, approve of the court's decision against racial preferences in college admissions. Only 27% disapprove. Even 36% of Democrats approve of the ruling. Many of them are probably left-leaning white men like me who never cared for race-based affirmative action. Like most white guys my age, I turn 60 next month, I have been told more than once that I was being passed up for a job, an award, or a gig because my demographics were now disfavored. I shrugged and moved on. These slights neither destroyed my life nor turned me into a racist. But I came to see how affirmative action can sour race relations. My ancestors were poor European immigrants who arrived in the 19th and 20th centuries. What does slavery have to do with me? My senior year at Columbia University, I received no financial aid. I was 28, returning to finish my degree after six years, and the $36,000 I'd earned the year before disqualified me. 
My first job after graduating was as an office assistant at the admissions and financial aid office. As I was struggling to pay back my student loans, I processed an application from a black woman my age. I was told she had a multi-million dollar trust fund and was awarded a full scholarship because the university needed her for diversity reasons. Later, I worked as a math tutor at a private school in Manhattan. One day, the director called me aside to inform me that I was being let go. I asked what I had done wrong. Nothing. The kids love you, he said. You're doing a great job. We want to hire a black tutor instead. Do you know anyone? He smiled, showing no regret or sympathy. As a good liberal, I was expected to understand. A few years ago, a Hollywood producer approached me about developing one of my autobiographical humor books into a TV series. After a series of meetings, my agent called to ask if I'd be willing to change the lead character, based on me, to a person of color. It's almost impossible to sell anything based on a white male these days, he says. The idea didn't bother me, and I agreed. It wasn't enough. My agent later told me that studios weren't interested even in a project created by and based on the book by a white male. Some people react to being passed over for being white, Asian, or male with a bum, regarding their own setbacks as a price worth paying to right past injustices. Some magnify every grievance and become hardened bigots. Most handle it the way I have, by swallowing the unfairness and putting it behind them. Race-based affirmative action is gone in college admissions, and perhaps soon in the workplace as well. People like me won't mourn it. And now, summer is for salamanders. Summer afternoon. Summer afternoon. To me, those have always been the two most beautiful words in the English language, wrote Henry James. These days, what did children do in the summer? In the 1950s, I began my days with a glass of Ovaltine and a boiled egg. Then I think about my options. I might ride my bike to the local swimming pool with a towel wrapped around me and a quarter in my pocket for the good humor truck. It was a small community pool, no deeper than five feet, and with a single lifeguard, a college girl who let me sit on her lifeguard chair. She applauded when I performed water tricks for her, especially the one where I disappeared underwater and lifted my legs straight up. I felt like an Olympic swimming star under the bright sun. We had a pond behind our house, down the lane past the raspberry bushes. I looked for frauds and lizards in the water. On a hot day, I'd run down to the field and nearly leap into the raspberry bushes and pick berries, crushing them with my tongue against the roof of my mouth, savoring the taste and the quenching juice. Then I sat at the edge of the pond and searched for salamanders. A boy can see himself in the pond's reflection. A man can easily forget there ever was such a pond. I like sliding my hands slowly in the water and scooping up a salamander. I liked it admiring its tail, head, and its summer legs. Summer boys pay attention. Is there a better way to spend a hot summer afternoon than lounging in a tree fort with a copy of Treasure Island and a glass of Kool-Aid? There is. I'd like to hear about it. 
15 men on the dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. One of the best parts of my summer days was trying to spot snapping turtles. In my mind, they were sea monsters, cousins of the dinosaur, and ferocious with their iron jaws. To see a snapping turtle just below the surface of the water like a lurking submarine was for me a high adventure in my own private summer ocean. One summer I built a hut with sticks from the mock orange bush and I used grass as insulation. I made mud cookies and baked them on the hot roof of the chicken coop. I played gas station on my bike, rhododendron leaves for dollars, the mailbox was the gas pump. Yo-yos, Cracker Jack and Davy Crockett hats, ring dings and Dakota rings, I was well equipped. And the nights when the window was open, pulling in the cool air and the crickets and tree frogs, Cordled and Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford, Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris were summer gods waving their magical bats on the radio. Things have changed since I was a boy but I still think you can give a kid a baseball glove and a book on a hot afternoon and tell him there are lonely turtles and salamanders hoping for a visit down by the pond. Wait a while and listen closely. You might just hear him say, Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. And now Jason Gaze, How I Stopped the Sporting Goods Addiction. There was a period of my life not long ago when I could waste an easy hour and a half looking at cycling shoes on the internet. Maybe more than an hour and a half. I would consider cheap cycling shoes and expensive shoes. White ones and black ones, blue ones and high visibility, pinkalicious ones, custom shoes, and shoes I could specifically contour to my foot by baking them briefly in the oven. At the time, I believed that every one of these pairs of shoes would make me better at riding my bike, or at least make me look cooler while riding my bike. Every once in a while, I would pull the trigger and buy a pair of new shoes, which, of course, did the exact same thing as the pair of perfectly fine cycling shoes I already had at home. This is a condition known as sports gearalism, and I will come right now and admit I am a slowly recovering sports gearaholic. I have been an addict for cycling paraphernalia, for golf stuff, tennis nonsense, fishing tackle, fitness equipment, and probably a few other hobbies I am suppressing because it's too embarrassing to remember. Oh, that's right. I bought at least five different jump ropes at various times because I was going to teach myself as a clumsy grown adult to become great at jumping rope. Spoiler alert, I did not become great at jumping rope. Repeat buying is a clear signal you are a sporting goods addict. Excitingly buying a piece of gear, waiting for its arrival, only to open it and immediately realize you already have this exact same piece of gear already in your possession. This is evidence you have fallen into a state of sports gear mania. Unable to keep inventory, and it leads to embarrassing situations, like your wife asking why you own four sets of 20-pound dumbbells. I will tell you right now, there is no satisfactory answer to this question. Gyms do not have four sets of 20-pound dumbbells. This is the addiction. If you've never been a sports gearaholic, it's hard to explain, 
the adrenaline felt upon walking into a tackle shop and beholding the rolls of sleek, colorful lures, each one promising to land a fish the size of a sofa. We're deft online, clicking page after page of golf clubs, golf balls, golf clubs, and gloves, each whispering a promise to raise performance and golf happiness. All of this is a lie. The only thing standing between us and golf happiness is golf itself, a cruel game created for the purpose of making contented people miserable. It took me years to realize that I was the technology that mattered and my tech is flawed. I'm an aging, desk-bound non-athlete who, if I really want to elevate my performance, should lay off the peanut butter pretzels. No piece of equipment will ever single-handedly raise my golf game, tennis, or cycling. That lure does not make me a better fisherman, and I won't even get into the dumbbells, which I think the cat now uses for a bed. Today I'm in a better place. I buy far less stuff for myself. Though I've relapsed with sports gearahism for my children, I've dialed that back too, leaning into the second-hand market. It's been a while since I blew an afternoon looking at cycling shoes. I drive past tackle shops without even buying worms. I have more time for doing what I enjoy, which is being outside, fishing, riding, playing doubles tennis, or standing on the golf course wondering why I ever took up this terrible sport. I wouldn't call it inner peace. I'm not better at any of it. It's cheaper, though. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.